0: Welcome to Freedom Fellowship. More information can be found online at cometofreedom.com. Grab your Bibles, open your hearts. You're gonna be blessed today. We have a special guest teacher with us. We love the word of God because we love the Lord and we love what he has to say to us. So please get your hearts open and ready to receive all that he would have. If you don't want to miss any future studies from Freedom Here, please subscribe now.
1: So, let me begin by holding you and this time up to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day you've given us and for this time to be together as we worship you, uh, as we praise you, and as we learn uh, of you and of your will for our lives your word. I pray, Lord God, that you uh, take your word and impress it deeply into our hearts and minds so that we would be better models of you, uh, not only to each other, but to all those with whom we come in contact. We, all, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, any organization is only as good and strong and successful as its leadership. The principle that good leadership is necessary uh, applies to any organization uh, everywhere, to businesses, to a football team, to a family, and to the church. After all, the church is a corporate body, not merely a collection of individuals. And therefore, it requires some kind of structure to operate well, uh, and to fulfill its mission. Now, Paul discusses this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. However, what is interesting is that while the church is an organization, it is not an organization in the same sense as is a business or a football team. What do I mean? What I mean is that in the Bible, The church is described as having an intimate connection with Jesus Christ himself. The church is described as his body. And when Saul, who later became known as Paul, was persecuting the church, Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? The church is so intimately connected with Christ that what happens to us affects him personally. Now, the church is also described as God's bride, his wife, his children, his people, his temple, his building, his kingdom, and his family. Now, all of these descriptions suggest that there is something far deeper uh, and organic about the church than simply a business or other form of organization. And when I say organic, I mean that there is a unity, a oneness, a connectedness uh, in the church that is not necessarily present in a business or a football team. So for example, uh, the church is described as a building. Now every part of a building is connected and is necessary. If you don't have a wall or a roof or a foundation or a support beam, you won't have a complete building or a very good one. And likewise, in a family, every member is connected. And if the parents are angry with the child, they can't fire the child or send him or her down to the minors. Um, And if there's estrangement between family members, we all know how heartbreaking and disastrous that can be. Now that is especially true regarding husband and wife. If they are not a unity, then there is no marriage. And divorce can be one of the most devastating and traumatic things a person can experience, which is why in Malachi it says, God hates divorce. Now all of these things are pointing to the fact that because of the intimate union between Christ and his church, the type of people who lead a local congregation is of profound importance. Now we will see that what God values to a large extent is unlike the kind of leadership requirements and characteristics uh, that are valued by businesses and football teams. Additionally, what God values and the requirements to be a leader in the uh, church apply to every one of us, whether or not we are in positions of formal leadership in the church. So this passage uh, that we will be looking at today is for all Christians. And if any of you here are not a Christian, this passage is also for you because it shows what Christ wants his people to be like. Now, I'm going to be concentrating on 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, which are the requirements to be an elder or overseer in the church, not on verses 8 through 13, which are the requirements to be a deacon. Now, the reason is that the requirements for the two levels of leadership are basically the same. They often use the same words and phrases, as I will mention as we go through this. There is only essentially one difference between the requirements to be an elder or overseer and the requirements to be a deacon and we will deal with that when we come to it. So let me read 1 Timothy 3 verses one through seven. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, which says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the children of God? Uh, the church of God. And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. What these verses are telling us is that a Christian must have the character of Christ. Now, we will see why a Christian must have the character of Christ as we consider three things. First, we'll look at some background aspects of this passage. Secondly, uh, we will take a look at the 15 requirements Paul lists for a person in leadership in the church. And third, we will make some observations concerning the passage as a whole. So first, some background aspects of this passage. Now, in the Bible, the early church had two levels of leadership. The top level, known as elders or overseers, and the second level, known as deacons. Now verse one begins by saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now the Greek word for overseer is episkopos, which is often translated uh, as bishop. It is equivalent to, uh, uh, and in the books of Acts and Titus, is used interchangeably uh, with the word presbyteros, which is translated elder. So, what is being referred to here when it talks about elders or overseers is the top level of leadership in a local church, whether they are called pastors, bishops, overseers, or elders. Uh, these are the people who generally set the policy and engage in the ministry of the word, uh, namely preaching, teaching, uh, counseling, and discipling, etc. Now, one commentator says, it is noteworthy that here Paul defines being an overseer in terms of function, not status or office. He's not encouraging people to seek status, but responsibility. In other words, we are not to be in it for the money or the power or the acclaim. Jesus put it like this, In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, uh, when he said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, "'and their great men exercise authority over them. "'But it is not this way among you. "'But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant.'" and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, verse 2 of our passage begins, An overseer then must. And Paul then lists 15 requirements to be in the top level of church leadership. Now, we need to see two things here. First, Paul is not saying that uh, to be in leadership, one must meet one, or five, or even a majority of the 15 requirements. He's saying that to be a leader in the church, a person is to meet all of the requirements. Now, second, what is remarkable about these requirements is that with the possible exception of the ability to teach and not being a new convert, they are all requirements that every Christian should have. And I say the possible exception because everyone of, well, every one of us teaches in various ways, by what we say, by how we say it, and by how we live our lives. And also, every new convert will grow up in Christ so that he or she will no longer be a new convert. Now, the fact that these requirements apply to all Christians is also seen in the fact that there are no special requirements concerning one's level of education, uh, material wealth, or other such external matters. Instead, All of the requirements relate to one's character. And because of this, every Christian is a potential leader in the church. And therefore, as I said at the outset, every Christian should have the character that Paul describes in these verses. Now, interestingly, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul listed 50. 15 examples of unrighteous people uh, for whom the law was made. Here, Paul is saying that our character as leaders is to be the complete opposite of the type of people who must be subject to the law, because we are no longer subject to the old law. Instead, we are to have the character of Christ because now we are subject to the law of Christ. Our behavior flows out of our character, and just as character is to be the complete opposite of the unrighteous, so our behavior is to be the complete opposite of the types of acts listed in chapter one, verses nine and 10. Now, people who are in positions of leadership in the church are the most visible representatives of Christ to the congregation and to non-believers in the community. However, every Christian is a leader because every Christian is a representative of Christ to our neighbors, our friends, and our coworkers. In fact, to everyone with whom we come in contact. Therefore, again, it is imperative to recognize that we all are to have the character of Christ and truly model him by how we live. Therefore, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 should apply to every one of us. So let's take a look now at the 15 requirements Paul gives us to be a leader in the church. Now, Paul's list of requirements for church leadership begins with the fact that a leader is to be above reproach. The same requirement applies to deacons in verse 10. Now, the word above reproach essentially means that one cannot legitimately be accused of wrongdoing. And this implies that the person is clean both inside as well as out. The idea is similar uh, to John's metaphor of walking in the light in 1 John 1, verses five through seven. There, John says that we should walk in the light as God himself is in the light. Now, think of light and what it does. It causes things to grow. It warms us when we're cold. It enables us to see where we're going and where we should be going. Now, that's what leaders should be like with their people. But there is another aspect of light that is very important, and that is the fact that light is transparent. In other words, there is nothing hidden inside of the light itself. All is clear. In the same way, one who is above reproach does not have hidden sin. He or her inner virtue and character are transparent and clear to everybody. He or she is the same on the inside as what we try to portray on the outside. That is the way Christians are to be. Now, the next requirement says that the leader is to be the husband of one wife. Now, this requirement does not mean that a man has to be married in order to be a leader in the church. I mean, after all, neither Jesus nor Paul were married, but I think we would all agree that they were both qualified to be leaders in the church. However, it's saying that if a man is married, he should only have one wife, not be polygamous. Now, that is an issue for the church in many parts of Africa, where I go. Uh, And we have dealt with this in a number of conferences, and in some cases, uh, the church leaders got together and talked about this, and some of them who said, I don't meet that requirement. I need to step down and they had the character enough to step down because they had more than one wife. Now in our culture, polygamy is not an issue, but serial monogamy is. In other words, you marry someone, you get divorced and then marry someone else. Maybe you divorce and remarry yet again. Now Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 19, verse 9, where he said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, God's ideal uh, for marriage is monogamy, not serial monogamy. We are to model God's ideal. There are of course, legitimate reasons for divorce, but divorce is always traumatic. And we need to understand something. Just as celibacy is a calling, so marriage is a calling. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Now Christ has only one bride, the church not the church and the world. And Christ is faithful to his bride. We who are married are to be like that. Because remember, everything we're doing is a picture of Christ to someone. Now, the important thing also that we need to know about this is that the issue is deeper than just being monogamous. The literal Greek phrase which is translated husband of one wife actually is a one-woman man. The same phrase is used regarding deacons in verse 12. Now you can be married to only one wife and yet not be a one-woman man. That happens all the time when somebody has a girlfriend on the side or some other illicit relationship. But to be a one-woman man implies more than not just sleeping around. It implies that a married man should be faithful to his wife inside and out. In other words, not only should he not cheat on her by sleeping with other women, but he should not commit adultery in his heart by looking with lust and fantasizing about other women or by going to strip clubs or by using pornography. It's a matter of character. Now the next requirements are temperate and prudent. These terms are similar and they convey the idea of being sober-minded. In other words, having a sound mind sound judgment, and self-control. The same thing is said of women deacons in verse 11. Now leaders, of course, must give wise counsel, and the church members need to know that the leaders are thoughtful and that their judgment is not clouded by any improper influences. And again, this applies to all Christians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, says that all believers have the mind of Christ, and that means that we need to use the mind of Christ temperately and prudently. The next requirement is respectable. People will tend to show leaders respect because of the positions of authority and responsibility that leaders hold. However, the issue is, am I worthy of the people's respect? Try asking yourself, if people saw what I'm like in private, would they still respect me? You see, our character, what we are really like, is revealed by what we do when we think no one is watching. And if you don't like the answer to that question, then get serious and make the changes you need to make. Get counsel and help if necessary, but do something because this goes to the very heart of your qualification to a leader and goes to the very heart of your profession of faith and your relationship with Christ. Now the next requirement is the leader needs to be hospitable. To be hospitable essentially means that you love or care for people and strangers. Now, this is important because a leader needs to know people well. Knowing their problems, hopes, fears, etc., helps you to be a better Christian leader. Knowing their strengths, weaknesses, gifts, and abilities helps you to raise up new leaders in order that all the parts of the body of Christ can be used to the best advantage in ministry. Now this builds up and strengthens the entire church. But again, this requirement of hospitality applies to all of us. How well do we know our neighbors uh, and our coworkers? You see, we need to relate to people well. As we get to know people better and spend more time with them, we will be better able to speak with them about Christ and model Christ and his care to them. However, hospitality can come with a cost. Being hospitable to all kinds of people For example, people of a different ethnic background, um, people with different backgrounds in general, people with HIV-AIDS may alienate some people in the church. If that happens, you've got to ask yourself, do I have the guts to do the right thing anyway? I mean, if you think about it, That was one of the chief criticisms made by the religious leaders against Jesus. They said, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But that didn't stop Jesus from showing love and compassion to all sorts of people. And it should not stop us from showing hospitality to all sorts of people. It is a matter of our character. Now the next requirement to be a leader in the church is to be able to teach. Now this is the one real difference between the requirements to be an elder or overseer and the requirements to be a uh, deacon. Now deacons might have the ability to teach. Stephen and Philip, who were part of the first group of deacons in Acts chapter 6, had the ability to teach and they were very good teachers. But teaching is not a requirement of the position of deacon since the primary responsibility of deacons was to take care of the physical needs of the people. Now, there are many ways in which one can teach. One can teach from the pulpit on Sundays or during the week. One can lead a Sunday school or adult education class. One can lead a home Bible study or a cell group. Now all church leaders should be exercising their ability to teach in some way. And one reason for this is if something happens to the primary preaching or teaching elder, others need to be be able to take over that role so that the church will be able to carry on without missing a step. Um, Now the next requirement is the leader should not be addicted to wine. The same thing is said about deacons in verse eight. Now the issue here is not drinking alcohol versus, uh, versus not drinking alcohol. Paul lived in a wine drinking culture and Jesus's first miracle was to turn about 150 gallons of water into wine. Um, Everyone, men, women, and children in that culture, drank wine. The term here indicates one who is given to or addicted to it. You see, the principle involved here is addiction, not the wine. Many people in the church only focus on wine drinking, not the underlying principle and as a result many church leaders may not drink wine or other alcoholic beverages but they're still addicted what are they addicted to well they're addicted to things like power manipulation and control of people fame etc cetera, etc cetera. and these kind of things are far more damaging than being addicted to wine i was in a church for many years, where the pastor, uh, so far as I know, he didn't drink alcohol, but he not only manipulated and controlled his wife, but basically had the attitude, my way or the highway. He was essentially addicted to himself, uh, to his power and his control, and he hurt many people, but no one ever held him to account. You see, the leaders of the church should not let anything, whether a material substance like wine or non-material things like power, control them. The church needs to have an accountability structure, just as all Christians need to be in relationships in which we are accountable. Now the next requirements are the leader should not be pugnacious Uh, but be gentle and peaceable. Pugnacious basically means violent or a striker, one who lashes out at others. Now, a person can be violent in more ways than just with his fists. You can be violent with the tongue. You can even be violent with the way you look at other people. Uh, But gentle, is the opposite of that. Many people wrongly think that gentle is just another word for weak. Nothing could be further from the truth. Matthew 11, verse 29, says that Jesus was gentle and humble in heart, but he was not a weak man. Our natural inclination is to lash back when we are attacked. Jesus did not do that. Gentleness takes true strength of character, and Jesus demonstrated the strength of gentleness when he was viciously accused, but did not lash back at his accusers. Even Pontius Pilate noticed that and commented on it. You see, people notice our character. That is why character is at the very heart of what it is to be a Christian and to be a leader in the church. Now, peaceable indicates someone who is not contentious, not quarrelsome. Leaders should be consensus builders rather than always insisting on getting their own way. My way or the highway is not a Christian attitude. Leaders should be seeking the mind of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That will always produce unity and peace. Now, I got saved many years ago as a result of a teaching weekend uh, led by two guys from St. Paul's Episcopal Church uh, in Darien, Connecticut. Now, back in the day, St. Paul's and their rector, Terry Fulham, Uh, were well-known, St. Paul's was a well-known teaching center, and uh, Reverend Fulham was a well-known speaker and teacher. Uh, Let me quote from Fulham concerning the unity that results when we are seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm reading uh, from a book called Miracle in Darien about him and St. Paul's, and the excerpt I'm reading is he was in a meeting with Uh, the members of the vestry, the uh, leading group, uh, the church board in the Episcopal Church. And he said this, do you think St. Paul's would be any different if Jesus was in fact the head of the church? Do you think decisions would be made with six members of the vestry voting one way and eight voting in a different direction? No, said another vestryman immediately. If Jesus were the head of the church, There would be more harmony, another added quickly. We would be of one mind on what to do. I'll admit, Fulham went on, that churches are not known for their unity. He stopped and then said, but perhaps that is because unity has never been expected or worked for. Then he spoke quietly but firmly. I believe that if we are open to each other and to the Holy Spirit, He will lead us in the right direction with unity. We ought to try to make no decisions until we come to one judgment. To really be leaders who are peaceable by seeking and following the leading of the Holy Spirit and the unity and peace that he brings, that can profoundly affect what the church does, and how it is run. That's why these requirements for church leadership are so important. But again, it's evident that this should characterize all Christians, not just those in positions of formal leadership in the church. We need to ask ourselves, are people seeing Jesus in me? Because the Holy Spirit speaks to every one of us, not just those who are in formal positions of church leadership. and We need to be attuned to him, hear him, and follow him. Now, the next requirement is for a leader, he needs to be free from the love of money. This is the one requirement that talks about money. But what does he say about it? Being free from the love of money is clearly a matter of one's character. This is so important that Paul warns about the dangers of the love of money at some length in chapter 6, which we will get to in a few weeks. In fact, in Matthew 6 uh, and elsewhere, Jesus suggests that the lure of material wealth is perhaps the greatest danger to our spiritual state. The issue is not how much or how little money we have. The issue is an internal matter. In whom or in what am I placing my trust? What's most important to me? What do I think about, desire, hope for, and dream about? What motivates me? By what? Do I measure my success? Now, one way we can tell what the real answer to these questions is, is to keep records. See just how much you are spending for X, Y, or Z, and how much and what percentage you are giving to the church, to missions, to the poor and needy, and to ministries of all kind. We may try to fool ourselves, but the numbers don't lie. Now, the next requirement is one who manages his own household well. And again, the same thing is said of deacons in verse 12. Paul is drawing the connection between one's own household or family and the household or family of God. In chapter 3, verse 15, he explicitly calls the church the household or family of God. You see, our own families are the testing grounds that demonstrate our qualifications and competence to manage God's family. The issue of the obedience of children is not simply whether they are outwardly obedient and respectful, the issue is why do our children act the way? they do. Are they obedient because of love and respect for their parents, or out of fear? The issue is whether we manage well or not, and that requires wisdom and character. The next to last requirement is to not be a new convert. Now the reason Paul gives in verse six for not making a new convert an overseer is a matter of character because if the person might become conceited if he's raised to a high position too soon. You see, we need to know the people we are considering putting in positions of leadership. Give him or her a little authority and see if he or she is faithful in it. As Jesus said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If they are faithful, then they can handle greater authority. You see, what constitutes a new convert will differ according to the circumstances. Paul did not say how long somebody has to be a believer before he or she can be an overseer in the church. In Paul's day, when, believers, when all the believers were new believers, uh, the elders whom Paul and Timothy appointed in the local churches probably would have been believers for only a few weeks or months. Nevertheless, those who assumed positions of leadership would have been mature, faithful believers of good, godly character. And that is the issue, that the real issue here is one's spiritual maturity because every congregation probably has some people who may have been Christians for five or 10 or 15 years and yet they are still spiritual babies. On the other hand, some people have been Christians only a year or two, but they already exhibit great spiritual maturity. Those are the people the church needs in positions of leadership. Now, the last requirement to be a leader is to have a good reputation with those outside the church. You see, the church does not just exist for itself. It exists to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The church is to be in the world even though it is not of the world. In other words, Christians individually and the church corporately need to be engaged with our community and engaged with the world. But we are not to have the same character, values, and priorities of the world. We are to have the character, values, and priorities of Christ, and we should be influencing others for good. Consequently, the reputation we have with non-believers in the world is of vital importance. What they see in us will either draw them closer toward Christ or will push them away from Christ. So Paul ends this list of 15 requirements the same way he began, by talking about leaders in the church not falling into reproach. Now, when any biblical writer begins and ends a list the same way, in this case, with the word reproach, it's important. It's basically saying this summarizes the whole thing. In other words, if you are above reproach, inside and out, if no one can legitimately accuse you of wrongdoing, then you will meet all the requirements because you will have the character of Christ. So those are the 15 requirements. Let's consider some or make some general observations concerning this passage as a whole. Now there are four things that jump out to me uh, regarding Paul's list of requirements to be a leader. And first, all of the 15 requirements for leadership implicate our character either directly or indirectly. What Paul sees as most important for leaders in the church is that they be people of a Christ-like character. A person's education and other things is important, but the Bible reminds us, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, it's easy to say that we look to people's character, the real them, but do we really? To be able to assess people's real character, we need to know them well. That means we need to spend time with them, to see them in their unguarded moments, to see how they react to negative and stressful situations. But if uh, if we are talking about considering putting somebody uh, on the church board or elevating them to some other position of church leadership, There is a danger in getting to know the person well. The danger is this. If we know someone deeply and well, that means we are probably his or her friend and probably a close friend. The danger is that because we are their close friend, we are likely to overlook or excuse what may be a deep character flaw as we decide to raise that person to some leadership position in the church. Or, on the other hand, if we decide to blackball the person, so to say, we risk losing their friendship. This is an issue we need to see clearly and handle judiciously, because we should know the integrity of the church is at stake as well as a personal friendship. Now second, all of these 15 requirements apply to all Christians whether or not they are in positions of formal leadership in the church because every Christian represents Christ. Every Christian is a leader in some respect to some people, given the nature of the requirements for formal church leadership, every Christian should be qualified to be in formal church leadership. In fact, in 1 Timi- uh, Peter chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 1, those uh, pa- passages in those two chapters tell us that all Christians are priests in the eyes of God. Therefore, All Christians need to work to become more like the man or woman after God's own heart with Christ's own character as described here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Christ calls on all of us to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is, we all need to have and exhibit Christ's character and to live it out. The reason is that how we live reveals our real character, and that reveals who Christ really is to us and what he really means to us. Third, no one is perfect, and no one can meet all of these 15 requirements perfectly. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This tells me that leaders in the church and all Christians in general should get together and talk about these things. Those who are strong in some areas should help and build up those who are weaker in those areas. After all, We are all serving the same master, and we all want the church to be as good as possible. And as I said, the church is only as good and strong and successful as its leadership. And since we are all priests in the eyes of God, that means we are all leaders in one way or another. Now finally, If the churches seriously applied these requirements when choosing their leaders, instead of looking to worldly standards like one's education, job, money, or status, uh, our leadership might look a little different. Uh, What I mean is this. I think our churches would be more effective than they may be uh, by bringing people Who clearly have the requirements and the uh, the character of Christ in the leadership, even though they don't meet these worldly standards that most people in churches look to. My guess is that in every church there are a number of what I call little people. What I mean is people who do not have a lot of money, position, education, or status. They're the kind of people who tend to get overlooked when people are considering making others leaders. Now, despite their lack of the external indicators of success, these may be mature Christians of deep Christ-like character who meet all of Paul's 15 requirements. And those are the very people God has given us to be in church leadership. These are the kind of people who, hear the Holy Spirit, are attuned to his leading, and therefore can help lead the church in unity and peace. Now, if we take these things seriously and act accordingly, God will take us seriously. I think God will start speaking to us and leading us in ways that he has not previously done. And the reason is that now, we will all be people who have his character. And as such, we will be attuned to his voice, we will see his hand, and we will know his will, because we will know him well. So let me conclude by saying this. In these verses, Paul is showing us God's heart what is most important to him and what he wants his people to be like. Since Christ is the perfect representation of God, he wants us to have the character of Christ. Imagine what things would be like if all Christians looked and acted like the person described in these verses. If that were to happen, I think we would begin to see deep revival in the church. Non-believers would want to become part of the church because who wouldn't want to be part of a people who manifest the character of Christ and all the virtues of Christ? I think the future would hold great things for this local congregation and other churches that get serious about applying and living out what God says for us. So let me hold us up in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these requirements. You've told us your heart. And Lord God, some of these things can be very challenging to some of us. But Lord God, this is what you want for us, and so you will, empower and enable us directly or through the other members of the body to become just like this. I pray, Lord God, that we all take these things seriously because that means we're taking you seriously. And I'm convinced, Lord, that when we take you seriously, you will take us seriously and lead us in ways that you may not have been doing uh, previously. And Lord God, that is an adventure And it's an adventure I hope we all become part of. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.
0: Amen. Thank you for studying the word of God with us today. If you were blessed by the teaching of it, would you please make sure to share it, that others too may be blessed and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you.